what are you listening to right now? So much story pirates, I can't even tell you. Yeah. So much story pirates. Has a podcast been a big part of your parenting experience? It has now. It's really interesting because yeah. I'm trying to keep my son busy. He's got a very active mind without, and I have a personal, um, I detest screens. That's just a thing. That's Priyanka Matu, the co-founder of the podcast company Erios. She was on the very first episode of this show, and she's not alone in what she's describing here. The fight against screen time is very real. From LA Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. Today, a closer look at kids' podcasts. Are they the answer to screen time? But first, let's talk about intellectual property and creators of color. More in a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. The subject of intellectual property ownership and creators of color has become a real hot-button issue in recent weeks, when the hosts of The Nod and Another Round took to Twitter to draw attention to the fact that they didn't own their respective shows. This is an issue that highlights greater inequalities in the media business, inequalities that have historically and disproportionately affected creators of color. Camille Stanley wrote a lengthy piece for Hot Pot recently exploring this subject, specifically how creators of color are grappling with a system that puts them in a structural disadvantage, even in the relatively new context of podcasting. Camille, welcome to the show. Hi. All right, so walk me through what you found. So the first thing I found was that everyone wanted to talk about this, which is not surprising because it's a conversation that has been going on, I think, for producers and creators of color, not just in the context of podcasting, but just Mm. in the context of living um, but I think there, there was definitely something that seemed to be a, a nerve that was struck after the host of The Nod and, and another round really just bared what they've been going through, which is making very successful shows, very meaningful shows with strong attachments from their audiences. And then mm. their audiences finding out that they don't own them yeah. and them to varying degrees uh, going public with like what their fights are. The second thing that I found was that although podcasting is very small relative to other mediums and maybe bigger media structures, that there are definitely people who are watching this space and seeing what is going on. And podcasting seems to be kind of at a um, 
I don't know if it would be an inflection point, but certainly mm. kind of a reckoning that gels with what really the whole country is going through. Right. So a big part of my understanding of the story is that the sort of intellectual property and ownership arrangements that we've seen has largely been carried over from sort of these older, larger media structures. And there's a feeling that with podcasting, there's an opportunity to sort of rebuild this. And the fact that we're seeing this replicated again, is sort of kind of feels like a almost like a loss of opportunity or betrayal. Totally. And you've had some experience with this yourself, right? Yeah, um, I'm a black woman and I have been in podcasting about five years. During that time, I was making a show for other people. So I, I totally understand the idea of pouring yourself into mm. something and then having a realization that you don't own it. Right. And so one of the bigger sort of counter arguments I've heard so far has been sort of like, well, sort of what do you expect from these arrangements from these larger companies? They are the ones that's putting in resources and they're the ones that sort of taking on the risk in these arrangements. What's your sense of the validity of that counter argument? So I think there's definitely um, a validity to, for a certain class of podcast, it does take resources, it does take money to produce them, to make them happen, to market them, to get them to big audiences, right? That is a mm. fact of that, like, it's a seductive thing to conflate the kind of uh, little de-democratization that happens in podcasting because um, because people can make it easily and it can be distributed easily. It's easy to confuse that with like that making content is easy. Making content has never been easy, right? Or necessarily <laughs> inexpensive. Yeah, How, I can however, relate. I can relate. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> however... I think it's a little bit of uh, people questioning right now for the big boys, for the big media companies, for them to think like, well, we have to do all these things and it costs so much money. Therefore, we hold all the power. So I think that's where the push and pull is, so to speak. Specifically in the medium of podcasting, hosts in particular, they are not just as switch outable. <laughs> it's not a word, but it's what I'm going <laughs> to say here. You know, like people get attached because podcasting is such an intimate medium, right? It is much less easy for a media company to just say, well, this show will just um, take this person out because they're, you know, maybe getting a little uppity and mm. put someone else in. Like that doesn't work. The audience doesn't accept that. Hmm. They attach much more strongly the creator to the show, which means that whether or not media companies want to acknowledge it or not, there is power there. And uh, IP, ownership, is a form of power. And right. it should come as no surprise, I think, that this is bubbling right now and podcasting. Also because, I mean, people are just like... It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to go the way of the music industry. We don't have to go the way of big legacy news organizations. Right. Why? <laughs> that kind of leads up to this sort of larger question, which is, you know, if it doesn't have to be this way, what should it look like? And in your piece, you talked to a couple of intellectual property lawyers about this, who, who's thinking really hard about equitable arrangements. What did you find and what do you feel is a, a productive way moving forward to restructure these intellectual property agreements? So there's kind of like this parallel work that needs to be done, right? Mm. On the structural level, producers themselves, creators, flexing their business muscle. That means like paying attention just as much to their business, and they are a business, as they do the creative part of it. Right, stay vigilant uh, to, uh, yes. to the whole context, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. On the industry side, 
it will require them giving up some stuff, giving up some power, recognizing that, hey, if we're making this pie together, Hmm. I don't automatically have to get the biggest slice. Hmm. Or I can give a bigger slice to a creator. But in the context of all of this, because, again, none of this is happening in a vacuum, there will be pushback and there will be resistance because there's a lot of work that just has to be done like on on the people level, right? So if the industry is largely white, largely has shut out these groups, then there will have to be structural changes that happen before like the hard work begins, so to speak. Mm. Like there's some heart work and some head work and some policy work that has to be done on both individuals and industry sides. So like everybody needs to get to work. But specifically, <laughs> they really think that this is a moment where producers themselves, creators themselves should feel emboldened mm. to flex. And that's even if you are making a podcast for a company now. There's no reason why you can't say, hey, I'm making this show. Can we talk about after this season us rethinking our relationship? Yeah. So essentially the the permission structure is open now to have these conversations. That's an opportunity and a window here to really, really push forward into some real uh, concessions on the industry's part. Totally. So in your reporting, did you find any models of arrangements that uh, people have generally felt good about? You know, I found people who felt like they have come to a, a good compromise. Kristen Meinzer from By the Book talked about how she doesn't own her show outright, even though she tried to buy it. But the home that she landed with Stitcher, she does feel like they're investing in the show and that they have given them a seat at her and her co-host, a seat at the table when it comes to kind of future uses of their IP. Rebecca Nagel of the This Land podcast talked about working out IP with Crooked Media and how she was able to come to a place where she shared IP with them. Many creators would would love to own it outright, but there are some people who are coming to kind of a, a compromise. And that's actually, it supports what the experts told me, which is you have to decide kind of like within your own heart and mind, like what's most important to you and maybe giving a little bit of way to have a little bit more freedom might be okay with you, but maybe holding on to that ownership 100% is so important and that's how you kind of want to move through the world. Hmm. Last question for me. Um, does this feel like a hopeful moment for you? Oof. Oh, man. In the world? No. No, I mean, uh, specifically <laughs> for this issue. Like, I, I too have mixed feelings about hoping or won't right now. But, I mean, I, more um, specifically, do you, have a, do, you have, do you feel like there is room to actually make headway here? Like we can actually see something change. I do think there is room. I do think there is room and I think there's headway if only because, I mean, I'm not necessarily thinking on the institution side or industry side, but mm. I think you will see creators of color and creators uh, not of color, just everyone, like I think flexing a little bit. Mm. And I think they should. And I think they should feel empowered to do that because their work proves that like they do hold inherent power, whether or not that's, being recognized right now by the industry yet or not. Hmm. So Camille, usually I like to ask people what they're listening to these days. Do you have something that you like to share? Okay, I'm just going to tell you guys what I was listening to this morning. Oh, go for it. I think we can all use a little zen in our life. So um, I was listening to the 10% Happier 
podcast mm. with Dan Harris, right? Yes, with Dan Harris, and um, it was a it was an episode about kind of the foundations of meditation. It was just really nice because it wasn't it if you whether you meditate or not, whether you're like super mm. deep into it or not. Like it was just laid out like really for like foundational things for kind of any practice. So I found it like as a good reset and something that I think we could all in today's world like use just like take a second are you a big meditator i practice daily i i don't know that i'm big but i um i believe in it and i and i try to practice it i'm not always so great at it but yeah Ah, i'm envious i I tried meditating but i fell (laughs) off the wagon a couple months ago that's part of it that's part of it (laughs) thank you so much for your time thank you when i was a kid All I wanted to do was sit in front of a screen. Television, early 2000s internet, video games, video games, video games. I fried my eyeballs by the time I reached high school. If you have a young child, you might have anxieties about that whole screen time thing. How much is too much? What is it doing to their brains? Surely something that addictive is inherently bad. I imagine these anxieties are even worse during the pandemic. You know, you're trying to deal with work while trying to deal with your kids, and a lot of those dealings involve negotiation over screen time. Now, I personally don't have kids, I have a cat, so I'm only going from anecdotes here. But imagine it's been hell for parents everywhere. So if you're worried about the whole screen time thing, and if you're worried about your kids' eyeballs, I think I know something that might help. Welcome to the Music Box. This is the story about Thomas the Tank Engine. I'm Julie Andrews, and this is my library. It's two what's and a wow! Now, kids' podcasts have been around for a while. But over the past few years, they really blew up. And as you would expect, they've seen a real bump since schools everywhere started closing down. And now it's summer, and schools are still closed. So, are podcasts the answer to too much screen time? And if they are, why aren't more people making them? You know, when we first started, we started Brains On. Like, we're like one of the granddaddies of kids podcasting. We started back in 2012. Molly Bloom is a key member of the creative team behind Julie Andrews' new podcast for kids, Julie's Library. She's also the host and co-creator of American Public Media's Brains On and its spin-off, Smash Boom Best. Brains On is a science show for kids. And it's also one of the longest-running kids' podcasts. And back then, like, a lot of what we heard from people was, like, kids would never listen to anything without a screen. Like, they like to look at stuff. Kids listen to stories all the time. Like, they're always listening to what people are saying to them. They love to listen to stories. I mean, kids back in the 30s listened to radio shows, so there's no reason they wouldn't want to do that now, too. This has been especially true for the past few months, with schools out indefinitely because of the pandemic. Molly is dealing with this issue herself self-isolating with her husband and four-year-old daughter. We spoke back in April. She thought it was hilarious when I recorded an episode in our closet and was telling everybody we FaceTimed with about it, like, Mommy recorded Brains On in the closet. But, you know, and since she is around a lot, like, she was near me when we were doing a script read-through for our episode we did about social distancing. People are being extra careful. They're not going out much. They're avoiding crowds. A lot of schools and restaurants and stores are closed for a while. Lots of events and parties have been canceled. 
and everyone is washing their hands. And she was listening to it, and it was really interesting because she like stopped and asked me some questions. She was like, wait, so even this is closed and this? And so she was tracking and listening, which was interesting for me because she is on that younger end of the spectrum. Hmm. But I think it just goes to show like how much this is impacting all of us. And kids understand so much more than we think, I think, sometimes. So like it's important for a show like ours to really address all of these things head on. So we've done you know three episodes about coronavirus now, and we have more on the way. Has this sort of experience of thinking about what the acute needs are of kids right now, sort of altering the way you're thinking about episodes in general? Like, I think the most recent one that just came out, and we're recording this around mid-April, was one about Mm -hmm. laughter, if Mm -hmm. if I get it right. (laughs) Yeah, it was about tickles and cuteness, yeah. Yeah, has this sort of, like, the approach sort of different um, with any sort of increased awareness of what, what kids are feeling right now? Yeah, I think generally we do evergreen episodes. So, like, everything that we do are things, you know, they're all inspired by questions we get from the our audience, which is awesome. We get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, emails and letters from our audience every week with questions they want answered. So we always pick from that big pool of questions for our editorial calendar. Hmm. Um, and we plan far out. But with this happening, basically we've been doing every other week episodes about coronavirus and and then uh, more like our normal episodes because we want to provide counter-programming as well because kids have a lot of questions about coronavirus, but they also need some relief. And yeah. so the episodes that we are doing in sort of rotation with our coronavirus episodes are ones that we're trying to make, you know, very fun and very engaging in a way that's very different than our coronavirus episodes. Hmm. How has sort of like the listenership or the audience for Brains On changed since school started closing? Have you seen sort of a market bump? Has there been yeah. sort of a 20% increase? How does that look like for you? It's grown a lot over the past month we saw I think a little over 60% increase and then just compared to like a year ago at the same time I think it was a hundred percent increase over that time yeah it's been kind of incredible to see how many people I think are just discovering that kids podcast exists for the first time Mm. because that's sort of been something that you know I think our little genre has always struggled with is that people don't necessarily think about it as an option for their kids even if they do listen themselves it doesn't occur to them that there actually are podcasts for kids out there. And so now I think as people are home and looking for alternatives to screen time, but also something that they can kind of put on and like have their kid entertained while they do something else because everyone's, you know, trying to do that, get work done or get the dishes done or whatever while entertaining your kids. And so it's exciting for us that people are discovering kids' podcasts. Do you have a a, like a recommended uh, way to slot it into your routine? I mean, I think like, you know, while while eating or coloring, like I think a lot of kids like to color or kind of like build Legos or something while they listen, which is kind of like how I used to listen to podcasts. Back when I first started listening, I would like put on a <laughs> podcast and knit because it's just like a really nice thing to like do something with your hands and also listen to a podcast. And I think for a lot of kids, they kind of let their imaginations wander and like make cool drawings while they're listening. And we get like sent a ton of drawings from our audience, which we love. Like we um, have these two characters we created for our coronavirus episodes called Kara and Gilly, who are viruses who host a podcast called Going Viral, <laughs> um, sort of based on my favorite murder very loosely. <laughs> Hit it, Gilly. I'm Kara. And I'm Gilly. And this is Going, Going Viral with Kara and Gilly. Sup, Kara? How's things? Good, good. Yeah, I've been infecting a new friend. It's going well, but I hope they don't get sick of me. Oh, Kara, are you trying out your... And so we've had a ton of drawings of Kara and Gilly 
in a Kleenex on the floor of a closet recording their podcast. Um, for the record, I too uh, doodle and draw when I listen to podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> actually, it's I have fun. sketchbooks. <laughs> I I've always been curious about this. Um, so I, I I'm a childless adult. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I haven't had been privy or, or had the privilege of watching, consuming a lot of children's media. And I'm curious as to when you create um, one of these episodes and when you sort of think through the experience of it, how much are you writing and producing for the kid and how much are you writing and producing for the parent that, you know, would Mm -hmm. be or might be listening with the kid? That's a great question. Yeah. So for for us, like one of the things we had sort of like some like core, I don't know, principles, I guess you could call them when we first started making it. And those have like really stayed in place the whole time, which is like we didn't want to talk down to kids. We felt very strongly about that. We wanted to feature a ton of kids' voices in the show, and we wanted to make something that would not annoy their parents. <laughs> so those were sort of <laughs> our like three main things. And so when we set out to answer these questions, we're learning a ton. And so we figured the parents listening are also probably learning a lot about those topics. And also we try to make ourselves laugh a lot too. <laughs> so like we kind of look at it like sort of like Looney Tunes where there's like a ton of jokes in there, or like a Pixar movie where like... There's a lot for kids to hang on to, but there's also some jokes that probably only the parents will get. Like we did an extended skit about lobsters that involved lobsters in a conference call, and there was a lot of great conference call humor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, lobsters. Okay, everybody, it's, it's time. Let's get this meeting started. Let's get it going. So we should say who's here. I think you all know me. I am Lenny Lobster, of course, head of marketing. Uh, Lily. Thanks, Lenny. Hi, Lily Lobster, Deputy of Public Relations. Oh, hi. I guess I'm next. Uh, Hi, I'm Lucy Lobster, Creative Director. Hey, Lucy. All right. And I know we have some lobsters on the phone. Who's on the phone with us? It's just Rock from the Mid-Atlantic office. Hi, everyone. Rock. You know, the cool thing about doing an audio product for kids rather than like a book is that kids are able to um, do listening comprehension sort of above their reading comprehension level. So you can introduce more complicated words and ideas than you would be able to in text. Would it is it a fair assessment to sort of like think that <laughs> are children just like little adults when you sort of like think about them in that way? They are asking ex- exactly the same questions that we are. There's just like a, a little bit of a difference in prior knowledge. Is, is is that sort of how you you think about when you're writing for kids? Like a a little bit, yeah. Like I mean, they want to know the same things we want to know. But I think it's sort of like, you know, if there is a scary side of something, presenting that in a way where you can also talk about the good parts of it. Like, so I think, you know, we don't do a lot of things that relate to death and dying. We have, but when we talk about it, we do it in this very, very sensitive way that we would not do if we were talking about it with adults. Molly says that the podcast was born out of boredom. Molly and her co-producers, Sandon Totten and Mark Sanchez, were antsy in their day jobs, and they were looking for a side project. At the time, the world of kids' podcasts was still really small. It felt like an opportunity. I think at the, when we started Brains On, there were no active kids' podcasts in the iTunes store. Um, we were kind of the only one who was posting episodes for a while. And it was interesting. I mean, it was, it was cool because, like, there was no template. And so, like, when we made our first four pilot episodes, it took us a really, really long time to make those episodes just because I think we were trying to figure out what that sounded like. So I think that sort of just shows, like, how long we spent thinking about what we wanted to be in the show and what we wanted the right. show to do. But back then, like, when we were booking guests, we always had to explain 
what a podcast was or just like say radio show because it was just easier a lot of times. But now we don't have to do that anymore, which is awesome. The team started releasing episodes in 2015, but it didn't really become a full-time job until 2017 with help from a National Science Foundation grant. Now it's all they do. The kids' podcast world has changed quite a bit since 2015. There's a lot more of them now, and it's beginning to fill up with bigger and bigger names. And so I wondered if Molly missed the good old days. No, I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, I think, you know, it was helpful to us in growing our audience in the beginning because when people who were looking for a kids' podcast search for kids' podcast, they found us. Even though we had like no marketing money to spend, we built an audience pretty quickly because people were looking for it and hungry for it. As the number of podcasts has grown, so has the audience. So like, as there's more and more audience, that's great because there's more audience for everybody. There may be more shows and there may be more audience for everybody. But one thing that will always set brains on apart is one of the more intriguing segments, the mystery sound. It's exactly what it sounds like. A kid sends in a mystery sound and listeners have to guess what it is. I couldn't let her go without taking a shot at one. I was hoping you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> Super excited. I've, I haven't played a kid's game since I was a child. So let's see how this goes. This one is very difficult. All right. So here it is. <laughs> It's a horn, or at least somebody making a horn-like sound of their hands. Mm, you are, yes, that is definitely happening. Do you have any idea what they're making that sound with? It sounds like uh, sheets of plastic. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, you are like 50% of the way there, which is really great. The answer is, that is one of our listeners blowing through bull kelp. My name is Otis from Victoria, and I'm six years old. That was the sound of bull kelp horn. Bull kelp is a plant that grows in the ocean. It looks like a cow's tail. Wait, like kelp? Like yes. as in the underwater plant? Yes, and it's so big that it's like basically like the size of a hose, and you can blow through it and make that noise. And he how did, just how happened did to find this near his house. <laughs> Is it edible? Like, what's the deal of what's the deal with this kelp? Molly, thank you so much, and uh, yeah. keep safe out there. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Molly Bloom is one of the creators of Brains On and Smash Boom Best from American Public Media. The team's latest project is a storytelling podcast from Julie Andrews called Julie's Library, and that's out now. Okay, so, kids' podcasts are big now. But it wasn't always that way. More after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. It's a little crude to say it, but making stuff for kids is still a business. The people doing the making need to put food on the table, you know? But there's an uneasiness to selling ads on something made for kids to make it all work. Sure, maybe we're a little numb to all of that, with kids' YouTube channels and Saturday morning cartoons, but still, when it comes to something like a kids' podcast, which does feel a little different from all that, there is something uneasy about the whole affair. So I thought I'd call up Lindsay Patterson. She's a co-creator of Tumble Media, which makes another science podcast for kids called Tumble. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we have the story of the first alien visitor to our solar system. Alien visitors like Mr. Spock? Like Brains On, Tumble has seen quite a bump since the start of the global lockdown. Even if the show doesn't resonate with everyone. Uh, he is not our biggest listener. (laughs) (laughs) Like her own son. His favorite show is Circle Round, and we listened to the new episode twice in a row today. In addition to Tumble Media, Lindsay is the co-founder of Kids Listen, where she advocates for better quality audio shows aimed at children. She's been a champion for kids shows for a long time, going back to the years when it was really hard to get any of them off the ground. She said that the genre has a serious numbers problem. What I discovered is basically there's been a general narrative in at least public media, which is the world that I come from, that data is not collected on kids Mm -hmm. under the age of 12. And therefore, you know, the radio consultants that said, yes, this is good or no, this is not worth spending money on kind of always were keen to cut the kids' shows. So time after time, efforts to make kids' shows were killed off. It just wasn't something that radio was able to support. And Mm. I sort of have the theory that as a result of the lack of models for, you know, up-and-coming producers to follow, they just didn't have the idea that you could make audio content for kids, which is why when we started Tumble, the most common question we got was, are kids even going to listen to a story without pictures? Like, <laughs> Wait, who's, uh, who's like asking the question? I mean, just like people we would tell the idea to, <laughs> like friends, <laughs> family, everybody was really skeptical. And so it was just, I think, a lack of the tradition of right. audio for kids at least in the world of public media and commercial radio, that sort of led to the idea that this is going to be a really difficult sell. I did a story on this because I just couldn't let it go. Digging into the history of 
public radio shows for kids. And there was a show called Kids America produced by WNYC that ran for four years and they had an incredible level of engagement. But, you know, when it comes along to radio consultants deciding what can you spend money on for the next year, people just really did not see the value in children's programming because there weren't really the numbers there to support it because the numbers simply were not being collected. You know, there was definitely proof, but I really felt like the number one thing that we had to do when proving to the larger podcast ecosystem that kids are an audience, that they are listeners, and that they're a valuable audience is get data to substantiate what we were hearing in emails from kids, from teachers, from parents, saying that their kids were really engaged in it. So that's sort of how we started Kids Listen. Lindsay teamed up with a few other kids' podcast creators to pull together a survey. They needed more data to support your work. And what they found was supremely helpful. The one that I returned to over and over again, because it surprised me so much, is that 80% of parents reported that their kids listened to an episode more than once, their favorite episode more than once. Hmm. And of that 80%, 20% reported listening 10 or more times. I, I feel like I feel like any household with a Frozen or Frozen 2 DVD would probably be familiar with this. Yeah, it was so surprising for me. But then thinking about it, I was like, this makes complete sense. And so I think it was really easy to then express to people, this is what we're seeing. And it's consistent with just how kids consume their favorite kinds of media in general. And then people are like, yeah, oh, yeah, I can totally see that. I think that kids find a lot of comfort in repetition. And once they find something they're into, they're really, really into it. So it's a combination of like, you know, I'm cuddling up with the thing that I like most. And also, I like this routine. I like this episode. These are just a few of my favorite things, basically. <laughs> All right. So you, you sent out a survey that was these sort of major findings. And since then, my understanding is that the genre has definitely sort of taken a leap or grown steadily and quietly over the past few years. How do you think the kids podcast community has changed since you co-founded Kids Listen? You know, when we started, it was all people who were independent, even if they were working from a station, you know, they were kind of going rogue and coming up with their own ideas. And that definitely still exists. But I think there's a lot more support for people to get funding off the bat, to get large distribution deals off the bat, and more people coming in from other areas, whether it's like TV, film, other corners of the podcast universe, and say, okay, yeah, I've, this looks interesting. Like, why don't I try my hand at this? So I think that we're at the point where it is much more mature, but I think it's I think it's always sort of two years behind the adults' podcast ecosystem. Uh, Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the uh, numbers bump we've been seeing under the quarantine conditions. What are the specific roles that kids podcasting can play uh, in these times? Can you walk me through your thinking on that? In the Kids Listen survey, we saw that 70% of parents had searched out podcasts as a screen-free option for entertainment and education for their kids. 
So, you know, it's something that parents can put on to take a little break, to give their kids a bit of rest and not feel bad about it. You know, so often as parents, we feel guilty about the kinds of distractions we provide our kids with. But when I put a podcast on for my son, I feel like I'm doing something good for him. You know, the pandemic and its effects are going to last a very long time. So I think we're going to continue to see audience growth and then fingers crossed once it's over and people return to their normal routines podcasts are going to be a part of their media diet. Before we go, uh, what are you listening to right now? I'm actually listening to Autumn, the app that just reads articles. The New York Times has acquired, yeah. I find it really comforting just to have like the simple voice reading to me. So I'm just, you know, finding enjoyable articles about pop culture <laughs> to be read in a calming voice. <laughs> do you do you feel like it's a kind of return to being a kid when, when somebody reads a story out loud to you? Like there's a bit of a comfort there? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think that circles back to the power of communicating to kids is like when times are hard, you want to go back to what you really enjoyed on like a very basic level that kind of like comforting storytelling really taps into like things are going to be okay, I can be calm, like I can get through this. Those patterns that you start developing when you're a kid, they last a really long time. Lindsay, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.